morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to the TT Podcast. We have a new king of Italy. All hail Jai Hindley, crowned in fair Verona. After three weeks of racing, Bora Hansgro won the Battle of the Houses. Now joining me to discuss the final stages of this year's Giro d'Italia is my co-host Tom. Tom, how are you? First it was Rob Hatch, now it's you. Uh, I had claimed the Romeo and Juliet puns from, from weeks out, and to be fair, Rob Hatch got quite a few in on the commentary yesterday. Uh, as Hindley was coming across the line, I was quite impressed. Uh, so yeah, I'm good, thanks to, to answer your question. <laughs> He's got a real knack for that. I remember him doing that when Teo won the Giro two years ago, and it was like, he said something along the lines of like, from the Hackney Marshes to somewhere else, it was proper poetry. And I get the impression that he writes them like three weeks in advance for every single rider on the start list, just in case something happens. Yeah, always got them in reserve. And I mean, to be fair, he's not really, Shakespeare wrote these ones 500 years ago. He's just paraphrased them. (laughs) Ah, you know, that's what they're there for. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure he'd be glad to know that they're being used in the way he intended them for, you know, Australians winning Grand Tours. I'm sure that's what he had in mind. Yeah, absolutely. Tom, how did you enjoy the racing? (laughs) Yeah. Difficult question to answer, I'll be honest, in, in the most positive way, because um, look, it's not been the best Grand Tour I've ever watched. Um, lovely story for Hindley. I think that's, um, you know, it's a great story for cycling and what he's achieved for himself and for Australian cycling. Especially, I mean, I know they've had Cat Evans who's won the Tour, which is arguably, not arguably, is better. <laughs> but um, to be the first Australian to win the Giro uh, and only the second Australian to win a Grand Tour that that's a really nice narrative but as three weeks of racing go it really didn't capture the imagination in the way that um you know some other races have completely agree with you tom um i am of course delighted for jai hinley um his last go at the giro was in i guess 2020 when i at the time was you know watching that race through rose tinted glasses or more like Teo tinted glasses. I was all in for Teo Gegenhart. And I think people thought, look, that was Hindley's pop at it. That Giro was kind of seen as the Giro without GC riders because they'd all kind of fallen away for some reason or another. And we were left with all these kind of domestiques rising to the top to assume the role of that. Yeah, so of course least... that was... Oh, sorry, I've interrupted you there. Go on. That's absolutely fine. I was going to say, at least we thought at that time Look, Hindley will always have a Grand Tour podium on his Palmares. He's a good rider. GC winner, may, uh, GC winner, maybe not, but he'll always have that podium. Now, this year, he was absolutely sublime. He's he got was another podium. Res- another podium, absolutely, even better one on the biggest step. He was responsive to anything Carapaz did. I think the gap was only about a handful of seconds throughout the race. Um, it went out to eight seconds at one point, and then he brought it back down to three, and then as we saw, which we'll get onto on stage 20, just completely blew it out of the water. Yeah, and <sighs> Carapaz was the overwhelming favourite going into this. Well, certainly going into the final week, I, you know, I'll be honest, during the first couple of weeks of the race, I did think that uh, Roman Bardet and Simon Philip Yates looked in supreme form. So to lose the two of them is a bit of a shame. Um, but even with those two, you know, before a kilometre had been ridden day one, I think Carapaz was the favourite to win the race. And... <sighs> Even going into that stage 20, I think you thought maybe this would be a formality. This was the day where he would attack. And um, it obviously didn't turn out that way. Well, followers of our Twitter, Tom, and I know you remind them every single week to follow us on there. Um, 
will know that I tweeted that morning of stage 20 saying Jai Hindley is going to win the Giro, save this tweet. And I had, I'd been feeling it for a few days because I'd seen every time they came to a summit finish, Hindley would pip him on the line or Hindley would be right on his wheel. And Hindley never really looked like he was in stress. And I thought he's, you know, he's holding something back here and he's going to hand it to young Richie when they get on that final climb. Yeah, it's good that you actually got that prediction on record because you've struggled with a bit of that recently, haven't you? Yeah, um, this is something that we needed to breach on this podcast was last week, and I'll be honest with you, I got lazy in the edit and I've paid the price. Um, at the end of last week's episode, Tom and I decided we'd do a few predictions off the cuff. Um, Tom was feeling a bit silly and he went for Simon Phillips. No, we don't Yates. need to hear this part. Just, just. <laughs> Tom was being a bit silly and he went for Simon Philip Yates to win every single mountain stage or any single stage that involved a hill from here on out in the final week. Um, I went for a more savvy pick and I said, you know, I'm thinking Alessandro Covey could take a you know maiden world tour win here, um, which he went on to do, but it's completely irrelevant because it's, it was never published anywhere. I've got the file, but I mean, for all you guys know, I could just record that now and drop it in. So Tom, will you vouch for me that I did say that? Uh yeah, no, absolutely. It's more embarrassing for you this way around. So, uh, yeah, he absolutely did say it last week and then cut it out in the edit. Uh, yeah, and it was I was lazy. I was It was getting late at night. I wanted my dinner. I was like, look, let's just, you know, roll the credits here, move on, and we'll say something next week because, let's be honest, our predictions never really pay off. Um, I also, I think I tipped Bookman to do well in the GC and he fell away pretty quickly after that. So uh, the balance was restored. Yeah, well, after I backed Simon Philip Yates, he... Uh, swiftly withdrew from the race about <laughs> probably within hours so uh, yeah I stayed true to form that's good um shall we look through some of the stages and I'll be honest with you Tom there's not a lot here that I'm particularly excited to talk about stage winners Jan Hurt um stage 16 Butrago stage 17 stage 18 Drews de Bont Stage 19, Kern Bauman. Let's talk about those stages. Now, Tom, what do all of those stage winners have in common? Uh, you've caught me. Was, I have a feeling. What do they all have in common? Were they all riding their first Giro? Couldn't tell you that. Not Is it sure. their maiden Grand Tour win for all of them? Again, could well be. No, because uh, Bauman won earlier in the Giro. He won stage whatever earlier on. Yeah. And I, hmm. Think about the way that they won the race. They all won from the break. They all won from the break. And look, I am all up for the break winning every now and again. But it's annoying. And Tom, we go on this podcast about how we struggle to explain cycling to our non-cycling fan friends. And, you know, we're watching cycling and somebody walks in and they go, oh, well, those guys are four minutes up the road. Surely they've already won. And you go, no, 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 because this is how it works. They let them go. They pull them back in. The Giro is really making it difficult this year because four days in a row, five days in a row, Kobe won from the break as well. Five days in a row, the breakaways won. And now I've just got to be like, you know what? Yeah. Whenever anyone gets a minute up the road, they're going to go and win. It was... Bizarre is one of them. And I don't know if uh, we've mentioned it before, if the Giro lends itself to that style of racing in the final week because it is so back-ended. You know, the GC guys will just let people go who have lost a bunch of time in the first two weeks because there are almost no sprint stages, are there? Well, there was one sort of flattish one and that was still one one from the break. Um, and those are the ones like in the mountains when someone gets up the road and they're 20 minutes down, no, no one cares about bringing them in. 
No, it was the Drewster Bond stage, um, mm. which I imagine it's always going to be referred to now. Was stage eighteen? Uh, that's when the sprint trains got a bit foiled. They didn't, you know, rein it back in as quickly as they should have. He won in a sort of reduced bunch sprint, but that's not as exciting, man. I want to see, you know, trains scattered across the road. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I would say what a tour it was for uh, Alpus and Phoenix in the end. And I would second that and say what a tour it was for Intermarche, Wanty, Group Gober, Materio. <laughs> you can continue with that one. <laughs> yeah, there was a moment on the commentary on stage twenty, right, where Bradley Wiggins said Intermarche, whatever they're called these days. And I was like, yeah, I could see the kind of throwaway pun you're making there. And like, yeah, whatever, it's funny. But Bradley, you know how important these sponsors are for the longevity of this sport. Like, get their names right. It helps. Yeah. I mean, it must be a bit difficult for a man who spent the latter half of his career at Team Sky, which is <laughs> <laughs> it's probably a bit easier to remember. But when he was in his uh, early days, when he was stuck at Cofidis and Garmin and wherever else he was, he must have known what that meant to them. Yeah, like, come on, like, I thought you meant Team Sky because it's just two words. Is that what you were getting at or because of how much money they had? Well, a bit of both. Uh, a, they, you know, they're one of those, certainly in this country, like ubiquitous brands that don't really need the sponsorship anymore. And B, it's two one-syllable words. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I was a bit like, look, if you want these companies to invest in cycling, which is the only thing that's going to bring it forward because the sponsors basically rule cycling. That's the reason you get riders up in the breakaway, your reason you get most, you know, mm -hmm. it has a big influence on what's going on on the road. Um, and he's not even getting the names right. And I was like, come on, man. So GCN, if you want somebody else to go on the back of a motorbike for three weeks, um, I'm available. <laughs> and I promise you, I won't be doing any dodgy Australian accents, but I might try my hand at some Dutch. <laughs> I'd be fine with that. Perfect. Um, Santiago Buitrago, let's have a word on him. New Colombian on the block, 22 years old. And I'm sure there'll be people here that will say, look, I've heard of him already. I already knew who he was. I've been following since he was 16 in the, you know, foothills of the Andes. And I'm going to say, look, we haven't. So let us enjoy him being on the block. 22 years old, one from the breakaway. Came 12th in the GC in the end, which we spoke about earlier, Tom, doesn't really mean anything if you fall outside the top 10 because nobody's looking. But good for him. Yeah, I mean, look, I'll go on the record and say I didn't really know who he was. I mean, I've just Googled him now. I'll have you know he came 53rd at the Welter two years ago. So where were you? Oh, well, good for him. Yeah. And you know, he's, he's moving up now. And uh, I look forward to seeing it. Um, now he's on my radar. And that's and sadly all I've got again, to say on Santiago Putrago. <laughs> well, that, that um, there's a couple of teams who you thought maybe wouldn't have um, stuck out, you know, really coming into this race. And I think Bahrain Victorious are maybe another one when they've taken that stage win there. Landers obviously put himself on the podium. Um, very successful tour for them. Yep. Other end of the spectrum, let's drop it back. Mm -hmm. What is the one team that's had a pretty poor Grand Tour that's a very important team? Not a very important team, a very big team, very wealthy team. Uh, what I mean, Ineos are the ones who immediately spring to mind. Tom, how many stage wins did Ineos get at this Grand Tour? Uh, I'm going to say none. They got a big fat zero, that's yeah. correct. Um, I don't think they want any jerseys either. They did not. No. And think back when they won it with Teo two years ago, they did like basically a clean sweep of the jerseys. I think there was only one jersey they didn't get. And that was obviously they came into that race with Geraint Thomas being their main hope and he crashed out on the neutral zone. And was it stage one? It was very early stage, wasn't it? 
Yeah, it was. He hit a bottle or something. I remember. I remember yeah. Oh, it's a brutal crash. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, and that, that was a uh, credit to my dad for that one. He messaged me last night saying, did you know Ineos have not won any stages of this year? And I said, thank you very much, dad. I'll save that for the podcast tomorrow. <laughs> um, so there's me, you know, always attributing my sources. After stage one, they were the winning the team classification. There you go. Look, I'm sure <laughs> Brailsford will ring that one out and say that yeah. was amazing, but um, not so good. Um, let's talk about stage 20 and stage 20, Tom, is this one this week that I was commissioned to write a race report for. So I've watched it from <laughs> kilometer got, zero. But you've got plenty to say. <laughs> I've got plenty to say. Um, turns out Paddington Bear is not the only one who likes marmalada. Oh, what? Uh did that go in your race report? No, that was one that I saved for uh, for here. Sadly, it didn't really fit the tone of the race report. No, well, that's lucky for the readers of whichever esteemed publication has uh, employed you. But uh... <laughs> uh, In the Dolomites, Tom, we only have one stage in the Dolomites this year, which I guess is testament to how boring this year has been. Um, <laughs> that go with the race report. <laughs> <laughs> that really sells that journalism. Yeah. <laughs> um, Alessandro Covey. 53 kilometer solo attack didn't look like it was going to stick then it stuck this is it i didn't see it live uh but i was being regularly updated because i had you texting me knowing that you'd edited out your prediction going he's going to get reeled in he's going to get reeled in he's going to get reeled in and then you go oh he's won <laughs> well there was a bit where he went basically just before the chima copy mm-hmm. um the highest point of the race and i was like that's gonna be really nice an italian's gonna go over the chima copy wonderful for Covey, he'll win that prize then he'll come back down he'll get caught in the descent and then it will all group together and then the gc will have their shootout on the final climb and then he just stuck it out he just rode like the wind and good for him which you should have been ready for which i should and i should have known because i tipped him tom yeah (laughs) um a bit of a masterclass from bora on that stage have you seen it by the way uh i've seen some very limited highlights okay well what happened was what do we have Byron Victorious leading it at the foot of the climb. Then they did nothing really. They weren't really doing anything. Ineos then take over. They burn off Ben Tulet. They burn off Pavel Sivakov for absolutely nothing. As soon as Sivakov peels off, Hindley attacks, which is proper ripping up the script. Mm-hmm. So that's like four kilometers to go on the Marmalada. Uh, Hindley attacks. Now they had masterminded the situation so that they'd had in the break earlier they'd had Leonard Kamner up the road and it just happened to fuse together I say happened to it was probably you know they've got team radios they know what they're doing um as Hindley attacks Kamner kind of drops back and as he attacks he swings onto Kamner's wheel and the two of them go they bring Carapaz with them drop Carapaz basically straight away and then Jai Hindley just takes off he put one minute, 28 seconds into Richard Carapaz in like less than two kilometers. It's one of them when you see your man crack um, like that, you, you've just got to put the hammer down, haven't you? Well, when it's there's, there's a short time trial coming the day after and that's it, you know, you can just deep into the red, just leave everything out there. He was spent. I saw At the end of the stage, he was like proper keeling over, heart beating through his chest. And I was like, good for you, Jai. Retribution. 2020 yeah and uh, i'll be honest um obviously carapaz must have done the same i didn't think he was you know coasting up the hill going oh I'll just no, i'm losing this year and that's fine he said, um, well i'm a great time trialist so i'll yeah, get him tomorrow yeah. <laughs> um but that, well, that's the thing uh the time trial the following day um 
re- you couldn't really split them there either, could you? Hold tight. Don't move on to the time trial just yet. I've got a stat for you. Okay, give me your stat. Tom, I'm going to ask you to guess a number for me. <laughs> and I want you to guess the meter difference in the birthplace elevation of both Jai Hindley and Richard Carapaz. Uh, okay. Um, Australia is not a particularly high... Where's he from? He is from Perth. Perth, which is at sea level. Uh, so so you, can, you can guess the elevation of that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Perth, definitely on the coast. I can do that one. Um, Carapaz, again. Do we say where he's from? That might help. Uh, Tulcan in Ecuador. Okay, I was going to that doesn't really help. No, obviously uh, it doesn't. I have no idea where that is. Obviously, the, uh, my, my knowledge of the altitude of Ecuadorian cities is not uh, as good as I'm, I would want it to be right now. Um, so it could be anywhere again between sea level <laughs> and about 5,000 meters, couldn't it? So- <laughs> right. Well, I'll give you a clue. It is in between that bracket. Yeah. Um, right. The number is 3,135. You are about 150 meters off. I'm not too upset with that then. That's uh, not bad. Was I high or low? You were too high. Um, Carabaz was born at 2,980 metres altitude and Hindley at zero metres. Yeah. Um, but Tom, the point I'm trying to make with that is you would expect Richard Carabaz to do better altitude and not crack at altitude. Well, I've seen this from the um, the South American riders. I know them. They, they've said this before. Like The climbs in the Alps aren't long enough for them or the Dolomites. They want 50k up an Andy somewhere. They don't want um, you know, 10k at like 10%. They want 50k at a gentle four or five percent, where and they'll just go at it for hours. Yeah, yeah, with the oxygen <laughs> pumping through their veins. Yeah. Um, credit to Jai Hindley though, he did do a few weeks training block at altitude in the Sierra Nevada in southern Spain, and apparently nice. that is enough to cancel out an entire upbringing at altitude in Ecuador. Uh, I do know where the Sierra Nevada is, so uh, thank you for that one. Um, That's good might have mentioned it before wonderful go on move on to your time trial no i was i was gonna try and think um you can there are some i, I don't know there are, you, obviously the whole of australia is not all at sea level but i think the highest mountain doesn't get much above two thousand meters which is definitely still lower than where carapaz is from not qualified to confirm that sadly okay um because i know you get it like you talk about you see the American riders, Sepp Kuss is always the one who uh, surprises me. Everyone's like, oh, how's it? You know, you don't expect the Americans to be this good at climbing. You're like, oh, he's from some town in Colorado that's 4,000 like, metres up yeah. in the Rockies. And you're going like, you know, some of them can spring a surprise. That's what I was always surprised when you have riders like uh, Bradley Wiggins, who was, you know, born and brought up in Belgium, I think, wasn't he? Uh, he was born in Ghent, I think, yeah. Oh, yeah, and he grew up in like London or something. And I'm yeah. like, there's no hills in London. No, and most of Belgium and the Netherlands is below sea level. So, yeah. Um, the time trial, Tom, I did not watch it. I was I was out and about. I was at a bike race. Uh, I watched the important parts, um, namely the last three or four riders going off. Um, and yeah, uh, there was, a, you know, a bit of a silence there because, um, again, just a very cool, calculated ride by Hindley. Knew what he had to do. He had Carapaz three minutes up the road. He's got the people in the radio saying like, no, you're not losing any time. Just... It's also, you know, they go up a hill. He, he he got to that summit 
uh, having he was within a second either way of Carapaz's time. I can't remember anything like, well, it's downhill on the way and you're not going to lose any time here, are you? Yeah, easy peasy. Yeah, and then they go and finish uh, outside the, um, what would you call it, the amphitheatre, something like that in Verona. It's very famous. It's not a coliseum. Like the, uh, what do they call it? The arena, the arena. The arena, yeah, that'll do. Um, yeah, I, I watched the last two kilometres of that bus stop in the in Westminster watching the Ride London Classic and I watched that bit where he you know finished the race then went through and everything went into the amphitheater and it was you know it was a grand stage for it but it was quite a lonely roll into the amphitheater <laughs> he didn't seem to be that ecstatic about- he know- didn't that's yeah. what I was thinking as well <laughs> thank you he, he rolled I don't know I mean it can't mean that tired it was a 17k effort but I mean yeah he did place quite highly on the stage from what I saw. He was in like top 10 or something, wasn't he? Have I made that up? Uh, don't know. No, I thought he was down sort of 20-ish. I don't know. I I didn't think he was that high up on the stage. Oh, uh, maybe I not. could be wrong. Hang on. Let me... Uh, I'll just I think he was top now. 10. Uh, he was not top 10. Carapaz was 10th. Where was Hindley? I've only got the top 10 here. Okay. Well, with the early days, that's fair <laughs> yeah. enough. That yeah. refutes that then. Um, but yeah, he, he, didn't, he didn't look that shoved, did he? No, he came across the line. So it gave it a one-arm salute. Wasn't even up off the bars. And then he had one... Uh, right, to be know. fair, look, I, I was with my girlfriend at the time at the bus stop and she was like, he's not really, you know, as you say, he was only giving it the one-arm salute. Mm. And looking at it he was on like rocky cobbles in verona on a, on a tt bike yeah at the end of a three-week grand tour so i was like look we'll excuse him of that but as but soon then, as he gets onto that you know that pink carpet i want him to be doing like you know usain bolt style celebrations yeah i mean i assume they've got a good celebration in afterwards he's australian they know what they're doing when it comes to uh going out after it i'm sure um but um yeah it just seemed a bit muted even when he um you know, when he stopped the bike before getting into the arena, he, there was there was only a couple of DSs there. I thought the team would be mobbing him, like spraying the champagne or the prosecco, once the corks had been removed. Of course, um, well, it, it was just it was just. I think Leonard Kamner was the only one there, and it was kind mm. of like that half hug you do to like the friend of a friend that shows up that you once had quite a big night out with, but you're not really that good friends with. It's and it's it kind of like it's a one armed hug. Like pat on the back, like, oh, you're right, mate. Good to see you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How's it going? Compare it to that day you had in Poe when Julian Alaphilippe won that time trial. Boah. <laughs> Never heard anything like it, man. Exactly. I was um, going to say, I, I was going to say it was higher than a big, it was, you know, louder than a football crowd, but I support Southampton, so we don't really get that loud anyway. Yeah, well, uh, I've got plenty to say about Southampton, but I won't do it now. No, this is not the, not the platform for it, Tom. Um, but yeah, you know, you maybe he just found it too easy and he was thinking, you know what, let's just get on with this. Back to Australia. I saw something online that he hadn't seen his parents for like two and a half years and they were in the amphitheatre waiting for him. Yeah, back to Australia, because as we know, he only rides two races in Italy a year and he's <laughs> done them now. So. <laughs> That's it. He's done his racing this year. Yeah. He'll go back to Italy. He'll ride the Herald Sun Tour or whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, then he'll be back at the Giro next year in Torino. Yeah, I can obviously we know why he might not have seen his parents for two and a half years. So probably quite nice to go back with with that swirly Giro trophy, uh, one of the best trophies in sports. So uh, he'll be delighted with that one. I mean, I think Qantas will probably make him pay quite a big extra baggage fare for it. But 
That's swirly. I just for the viewer here, this is obviously not a visual platform. Uh, when Tom said the swirly Giro trophy there, he did the motion you do with a finger where you're trying to mix a cocktail, but you don't have a spoon <laughs> to do it. That's what it looks like. But, you know, the swirly Giro trophy. Everyone listening to this now knows exactly what trophy I'm talking about. A beautiful gold one. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I completely agree. It's been on a train for three weeks, being shown off around Italy. <laughs> um, little word on the race that I was at on. Sunday, Sunday, yeah, yesterday, Sunday, yeah, yesterday at the time of recording. Um, the Ride London Classique in London, central London, down by the Victoria Embankment in front of the London Eye. Um, a very grand setting for it. Very good to get the to get central London closed off. Lorena Weavers won all three stages. She is absolutely unstoppable. She won each stage by a few bike lengths every time. Um, you look at the sprinters in the Women's World Tour at the moment, and she is head and shoulders above the rest. And we've got the Women's Tour coming up in about a week's time. And I cannot think that anybody will be contesting her for any of the flat stages there. Uh, again, in all honesty, I have not seen much of the uh, the Ride London Classic. Um, I'll be honest, neither did I, Tom. There's, no. When you go to these circuit bike races, not a clue what's going on. Not a clue. I've no idea if, if anyone's tried to go on a break. I've no idea what's happened. I see the cars come through and then I see the bikes come through and then I see the cars come through and then I see the bikes come through. And it was all kind of together yesterday. There wasn't really much happening. She sprinted and she won. Balsamo second and Lotkapeki third, I think. Well, it's good to see you. What a, what a, what a good day out you took yourself and, and your long-suffering girlfriend for. <laughs> she liked it. She got a free Jumbo Visma bottle at the end, and she's a big Wout Van Art fan. So she was pleased with uh, with the haul that she got. Uh, speaking of hauls, do you want to mention the other two bottles I can see behind you? No, we can't mention them because they pertain to a, um, a certain team who have a rider who I... He who must not be named. Who I refuse to name. And... Um, who you're getting very if, worried about at one point. Yeah. <laughs> he, if, he really did look like. And if people know about those bottles, they'll think I'm a massive hypocrite. So we can't say what bottles they are. They're um, in front of Julian Alaphilippe's face. I can't believe they're blocking him out. I'll move them. I'll move them. Um, I was quite disappointed the riders didn't get the full London experience yesterday, though, of, you know, dodging buses, delivery mopeds pulling out in front of you, jumping red lights which I don't do, by the way. Obviously not. For any police out there that listen to this podcast. Moving on. What's Moving next? On. What's next, Tom? What is next for the TT podcast? And I'll tell you what's next for the TT podcast. That is the women's tour. I will be back again this year, annoying the riders at the finish line. I'll be at the <laughs> stage in Oxford. And um, they'll have finished a you know week-long race. They'll be tired. They will want... Uh, a bit of food, they want to get back on the bus, they want to go see their families, and I will be there shoving my phone in their face asking them how they feel about the race. Yeah, they'll see your face at the finish line and I'm sure uh, getting back on the bike will seem a much more appetising prospect. <laughs> okay, well, until then, Tom, where can people follow the nonsense we have to say for ourselves? As always, they can find us at TTPDCST, uh, and that is on Twitter and Instagram. Every time I do that, the first social network that comes into my head is Facebook. I'm just like, we're not on Facebook. No one's on Facebook. <laughs> no one's on Facebook. Um, Twitter and Instagram. Find us on there. But yeah, thank you very much for listening. Tom, thank you for your company as always. And uh, we'll speak to you guys next time. Take care. Thanks, everyone.